Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Goh. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, Peter Goh. Uh, here live talking about the Brewers series, but first, is this is this does this have to be a Brewers podcast, or can this be a, a Bucks only podcast after a crazy Game Seven, David? I feel like we have to address that first to all of our Bucks fan listeners. What a crazy Game Seven! Of course, Bucks knocking off the favored Nets in Game Seven. Now heading off to uh, the Eastern Conference Finals, David. What are, were your immediate reactions before we even get to the Brewers? What were your immediate reactions on the Bucks game uh, on Saturday? I mean, it was an incredible game. It was a great series. The Bucks were down 2 nothing. Game two, not looking good. They lost by 40. And then to come back, take two at home, and then stay in the series, even after blowing a game five lead, was impressive to me. I know that the Nets were without Kyrie Irving. James Harden was not quite himself, even in the games that he did play. But the Bucks also did not get much production from Drew Holiday throughout the series. Chris Middleton was, he had some good games, some bad games. He was pretty inconsistent. Giannis from the free throw line wasn't great. And they were without Dante DiVincenzo, one of their starters. So for the Bucs to pull it off, I thought was really impressive. Um, And it was probably the most exciting basketball game I had ever watched uh, on Saturday. Uh, It reminded me a little bit of game 163 a couple years back um, with the high stakes. Um, Of course, a little bit different games and Brewers, they that time they were well I guess both times really Milwaukee was the underdog um, but kind of taking up and down and I really thought Kevin Durant hit hit that three at the end of regulation turns out he was stepping on the line it was a two and again not confident in overtime but they were able to pull it off somehow Uh, that was just a a outstanding game yeah I think I think what you said really probably was the most exciting basketball game at least that I've seen or most exciting Bucks game um, in a while I guess I think back to the uh, LeBron chase down block in the finals. That was a crazy game. Of course, didn't quite have the, the same stakes uh, being a Bucks fan. But yeah, crazy that the Bucks were able to hang on. In it. And even in overtime when, you know, Bucks were really faltering and somehow, you know, Bucks also got a little lucky. Joe Harris misses a wide open three. James Harden missed a, a very open three. Um, and the Bucks missed a lot of shots early in overtime. So crazy to think that they only gave up two points in all of overtime as well. And I believe it was like a Bruce Brown layup early uh, at the first possession of overtime. So nonetheless, crazy. Excited to see what the Bucs are able going to be able to do because, you know, likely that is our toughest opponent in the playoffs. And so hopefully we can see the Bucs get into the NBA Finals and maybe even bringing a, the ever-elusive uh, championship back to Milwaukee. So that, that'll been, definitely It's been be 50 fun. years since the Bucs won. Of course, Brewers have never won. So, yeah, uh, ever-elusive, as you said. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the Admirals have, I believe, won a championship since then, but uh, I'm not sure that's quite, quite uh, as impressive. So, mm-hmm. nonetheless, we we must uh, we must move on past the Bucks and, and talk about the Brewers, who a little bit less exciting week for the Brewers, um, playing against the Reds, who have been playing better baseball early in the week, and then a four game set in Colorado, playing the Rockies, and actually. Uh, still in the fourth game while we record this podcast, weren't able to uh, start recording um, after the game and just have to do it right now. So 
We will currently in the ninth inning of that game, we'll see Brewers are tied in that one, but disappointing week overall, getting swept by Cincinnati, losing the first two games in Colorado. Good comeback win in game three. That was a nice one to see. It was kind of a good day for Milwaukee sports. Uh, the Brewers coming back in that one on Saturday. And then, uh, like I said, tie game in game four here on Sunday uh, against the Rockies. So David, what were your thoughts from either the Brewers week or that first series against the Reds? Overall, it just seemed like they were really flat. Offense wasn't really there again. Uh, the, the pitching is, I mean, it's been fine, but I mean, the Cincinnati series was just kind of one of those series where it's not like they got blown out. They just didn't play good baseball. Cincinnati's not a, a great team. They, they aren't playing really well, but they're playing well enough that if you aren't really, um, aren't really at your best, you're not going to take a lot of games from them. And Brewers clearly saw that. It was the first time being swept at home, did I see, since 2016. I think it was. Um, so that was very impressive stat. I did not realize that was the case. Um, or maybe swept in a three or more game set because it was a three-game series in Cincinnati. Against, excuse me, three-game series against Cincinnati. Uh, but, yeah, kind of flat. Colorado have been playing a little bit better baseball as of late also. But not very good games. Game one or two, nice comeback win in uh, game three on Saturday. And then Sunday, uh, like I, like uh, like you said, the, the game's not over yet. Um, although Lauer, five good innings and then allowed a couple of home runs. Um, brought in Zach Godley, who just didn't have it today. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the thin bullpen um, really proving itself to be a little bit of a, a handicap on this ball club. They've got excellent starting pitching, even Lauer picking up today um, as their sixth starter. Uh, but then the bullpen not able to come through, and that's kind of what you get when you have Hader, Williams, Suter. But beyond that, or maybe you include Boxberger in there, uh, you, you don't have guys that you can really rely on that are lockdown arms. Um, you don't even have your, uh, your like 2018 Freddie Peralta or Junior Guerra type pitchers uh, pitching in those spots. You've got Zach Godley coming off a of, a triple A call up uh, or Hobie Milner, not guys who you really expect to um, really pick up and be a good bullpen option, just kind of depth arms there. Um, and I think that's what we're kind of seeing right now. And hopefully Stern's able to shore that up a little bit at the deadline as we approach that. Um, but as of right now, still a good pitching staff, uh, but a little bit thinner there in that bullpen. Yeah, I think we've known that the Brewers bullpen has been thin for a long time, but it's kind of the first time that we're really seeing a direct consequence this week. Like you said, having to put some of those arms who frankly should be more so in mop-up innings in either leads uh, or close games where, you know, the the decision of the game has been on the line. And even today, we saw the Brewers uh, give up a pretty big lead as a result of that. So I think we're seeing a more direct consequence of that. And even taking a look at the starting pitching, it's been rather unimpressive this week. And I know that we've had pretty high expectations for the rotation because of the performances that we've seen throughout this uh, first half of the season. But besides Brett Anderson going seven scoreless, which was pretty impressive uh, in that game two against the Reds, um, not exactly a lot of great starts. Eric Lauer struggled in game one of the Reds series. Uh, Freddie Peralta th throwing seven innings, two runs in game three. But then Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns having uncharacteristically uh, poor starts as well. And then Adrian Hauser as well. So just not a lot of, um, you know, we just didn't see a lot of success from the Brewers starting pitching this weekend. So that's why I think that we saw the, the Brewers bullpen perhaps exposed a little bit more because when you've got Peralta, Burns, Woodruff going seven innings, one run, you know, you don't have to rely on the Brewers bullpen too much. And you can also rely more on 
you know, Woodruff, excuse me, uh, Hader, Williams, Boxberger, Suter, uh, to go an inning and the Brewers get out of the game. But when the starters unable to get through five or six, um, then that's when you start getting to Godley, Milner, those type of arms. Mm-hmm. Also just wanted to provide a quick update. Of course, our listeners will be hearing this tomorrow, but Chase Peterson led off the ninth with a single off Daniel Ward, stole second, Vogelbach drove him in with a single. So Brewers up 7-6 now, um, two outs in the top of the ninth, and presumably Hayter coming in uh, three, third day in a row if he, if he does appear. Um, but seems like he might. Uh, so just wanted to update, more so update you, Peter, on where the Brewers are at right now. Yeah, no, thanks for that update. And, and even actually after Vogelback single, Christian Yelich singled as well. So the Brewers still uh, with two outs and two runners on. So a chance to perhaps extend the lead, hopefully. Would be, it would be nice for the Brewers to at least take this one, split the series with Colorado. Um, I don't know if you'd say stop the bleeding, but just a good way to end a, a very shaky week. And, and kind of while we talk about a shaky week from the Brewers, of course, with including, you know, three losses to a divisional opponent in the Reds who are sitting at number three in the division. Just want to take a quick look at the NL Central standings. Brewers still atop, uh, or excuse me, I mean, depending on Sunday's game uh, will depend on whether or not they are tied with the Cubs at the top. So currently half a game behind the Cubs um, sitting at 39 and 32. So still seven games above 500. And again, sitting in that number two spot in the division, Cubs, Brewers, Reds, Cardinals, Pirates. Uh, Cardinals are three games back from the Brewers as well. So kind of the team that we've been watching throughout the season. We'll see if the Cubs can continue to have more success than expected. Uh, but any thoughts that you have, David, around the NL Central standings? I think that there's a – it's been kind of held – I think it's kind of held steady throughout the year. Um, we've seen the Cubs and the Brewers towards the top, Reds, Cardinals kind of in the middle, and then the bottom-feeding Pirates. Uh, nothing really new there. But it will be interesting to see if the Cubs do fade out now, heading into uh, some of the more summer months where usually the the better teams kind of rise to the top and the teams that are maybe more of like the pretenders or the, the teams that shouldn't really be at the top of the division, um, those guys kind of sink more towards the bottom. I don't know if we'll see that, but it's possible we will. Um, with a team like the Cubs, who have one of the worst rotations in baseball. Their offense, they've got some good bats in the middle of the lineup, but pretty thin overall offensively. I think it's it's possible that we will see that. And of course, as a Brewer fan, hopefully we see that. Uh, but I think that's kind of the biggest thing to look at uh, with the standings right now. Yeah, I agree. I think now is kind of the time where, you know, the good teams start separating themselves and we'll see if the Cubs are for real or if they've just had a good start to the season. And even taking a look more broadly at the National League standings as a whole, I know the Giants have been a big surprise so far this year, um, actually with the best record in all of the National League at 45 and 26, a game and a half up on the Dodgers and five games ahead of the, the, the Padres as well. So a very competitive NL West. We expected, of course, Dodgers and Padres to be there, but now you throw the Giants in the mix. How do you see, I know it's way too early, but how do you see um, the NL West and the playoff picture, wild card, all of those things coming into play this year with very very good competition in the West, four teams above 500 in the NL Central, and then uh, the Mets as well, seven games above 500 in the NL East. Yeah, I think kind of how you summed up the NL East is uh, pretty um, pretty pretty telling of how the NL East has been. The Mets have been good and kind of nobody else. Um, I think that's interesting because – the NL East was, I thought, supposed to be the best division going into the year. 
um, where you have the Mets who could could win the division and a very talented club. And even Lindor has been not very good this year. Um, and they're doing that kind of in spite of that on uh, a lot of injuries as well. They played fewer games also because of COVID cancellations earlier in the year. So we'll see how they react to some of the double headers. Uh, Miami actually has a plus 18 run differential, but they're at the bottom at 31 and 40. They've got a, a pretty talented club as well, although I, I don't think they're quite a playoff team yet. Um, Atlanta, as they start to get healthier, um, maybe add another arm. I think that they could rise to the top of the division. And I think it'll kind of end up being Atlanta and New York um, fighting for that division championship. And it looks like we're going to get three playoff teams out of the NL West. Um, I mean, even for the Giants, if they go 500 the rest of the way, that puts them at 90 wins. Uh, 90 wins probably will get you a playoff spot, especially we don't have a lot of top-heavy uh, divisions in the NL. We kind of have a lot of just okay teams, um, teams that are going to be between you know 77 and 88 wins, um, both in the NL East and the NL Central. I think seeing that, it's probably likely that the Giants are able to take a wild card, assuming the Dodgers will at some point take over that division lead. Um, like, and we kind of talked about the Central, but um, in light of the East and the West, it seems like there will be just the division winner in the Central, probably not a wild card. Um, and I think that's kind of what we expected going in, not a particularly strong division, but Brewers definitely have a good shot at winning the division and having to avoid that dreaded wild card game. And is it correct that the MLB has decided to go back to the two wild card teams this year for the playoffs? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I definitely, like you said, it's unlikely that the Giants fall off the face of the planet uh, the rest of the season. So it's likely we see them in the playoffs. Dodgers, Padres, pretty sure that we're, they're both going to be there. So, of course, one of those being division winners and likely two of those teams making an interesting wild card game. Um, that, that would be a pretty crazy wild card game if, if somehow the Giants do hang on to the division. I, I don't, it's very unlikely this would happen, but Dodgers, Padres, one game wild card. <laughs> yeah, that'd be so much fun. That'd be, uh, that'd be probably pretty close to the, uh, the Bucks Nets game we saw on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of money at stake in, in, in that, in that one game, True. um, from their payrolls. And I think it'd be pretty much like an all-star game. Be whatever, Just go through six, seven pitchers in that game. At least I, I feel like I would with how much depth both of those teams have um, on the mound, especially. But that's kind of a look at the NL uh, and our, our way too early talks about the playoffs. Um, before we, I just want to touch on what the American League looks at. Any any uh, final thoughts on the National League, David? Well, I think it's just kind of interesting how it's shaking up. I think especially yeah, the Giants are a big surprise, but. Um, otherwise, I think things are starting to fall into place. And you always kind of enjoy getting to that point of the season where you can kind of start to see things shaping up. Yeah, like you said, we, we, we've hit that point where it's starting to, you know, we can start seeing who, who are the real teams here and, and what is the season going to look like. And looking at the American League, a couple of teams near the top here, Red Sox, 43-29, Rays, 43-29, and 29, White Sox, 43-29, and 29, and the Astros, 43-28. and 28. So those four teams uh, at the top of the American League. Yankees also above 500. AL East has been a good division overall. Red Sox, Rays, Yankees, Blue Jays, all at or above 500. Um, so a lot of success over in the East. Not too shocking. Blue Jays have been an interesting team to watch, fun team to watch. Of course, Vlad having a breakout year. And then the NL, excuse me, AL Central, I think the, the biggest story has been the Twins, who are at 11 games above 500. We talk about, you know, the Giants just need to play 500 ball to – 
to get to 90 wins, it, it can look scary the opposite way for the Twins and seeing what they would need to do to even, you know, win 86 to 88, which may or may not even get them in the playoffs. So do you see the Twins um, more or less eliminated from playoff contention this early in the season? Yeah, sitting 11 games below 500, 30 and 41, not looking good for them. I don't know if I'd quite say they're eliminated, uh, but I also don't think that there's a, a pretty high likelihood of the uh, the Twins making the playoffs at this point. Especially White Sox look like they're going to run away with the division. Cleveland's actually played pretty well, but I still think White Sox are probably going to win that division with a couple strong teams in the East, Boston playing really well. Both Houston and Oakland have exceeded expectations in the West. It doesn't look like Minnesota is going to be able to make it there. Um, and I, I think Minnesota is actually, they're a good team, but I don't think they're really that good. They, their pitching is lacking. Their offense, their, their lineup is very flawed. They've got a lot of swing and miss, a lot of strikeouts, and especially um, with the, uh, the ball that's a little less lively this year. I remember thinking about, I don't know if I said it on this podcast, but I was a little bit more wary of teams like the Yankees and the Twins that are so dependent on the long ball. Will they still be able to score runs like they have the last couple of years with the uh, the rabbit ball, the juice ball? And it looks like, at least so far, uh, neither of those teams able to live up to that um, as, as far as the offense is concerned. Um, and even the Yankees have really disappointed, even sitting at five games above 500. Uh, I know that the Yankees are kind of the talk, and it, it, make, it really seems like, based on what people say, that um, they're playing like a well below 500 team, and they're kind of just hanging in there. Um, so that, that'll be interesting to see, especially with the way Boston has played this year. Yeah, you touched on the AL West a little bit. Astros and the A's both tied atop the AL West, two, two, two teams that we have grown accustomed to see in those one and two spots over the last couple of years. Angels and Mariners, uh, luckily, or not luckily, I don't know, I guess just rooting for a little bit of change as well as, of course, Mike Trout and Otani over in L.A., uh, both those teams sitting about 500, but seven games behind in the AL West. Do you see, still see those two teams having a chance to maybe steal a wild card spot? The Angels, I think it's possible. Seattle's just not a, not a great team. Um, still young, maybe in a couple of years, but I don't think right now. The Angels are really hanging on at 500 without Mike Trout right now. He's out with injury. So for them to be able to do that, of course, Otani's kind of carrying them. Really impressive. I think we will see probably one of Houston or Oakland falter a little bit down the stretch. It's not like the Angels are um, away from striking distance. It's only seven games back. Um, I mean, I know the, the Mariners season in 95, when they came back and won the division, that kind of legendary moment, the Edgar walk-off, Griffey running home and scores on the walk-off. I think in mid-August, the, uh, the Mariners were trailing by 12 games to the Angels. So we've seen it before. Teams make up those huge gaps. Even the Cardinals in 2011 uh, with the wild card, I think they were down seven games going into September and made it up. Um, so I think it's possible. The Angels do have a, a pretty good team. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch in the American League. Uh, I spent a lot of time on standings today, but I don't think we've really talked about that much on the podcast. And I think we're kind of getting to that point now where we can start to make some meaningful observations out of the standings and how teams have fared so far this year. Uh, before we yeah. get any further... In the episode, wanted to go over a trivia question um, and our random player of the day. Probably the longest we've gone before we've uh, we've said either of them. And the, the trivia question is a little bit different this week. Actually, not a Brewers trivia question. Um, but earlier this year, Major League Baseball announced that uh, a number of Negro leagues from the between 1920 and 1947 pre-integration um, were going to be officially denoted as Major League status. So um, as a result, their statistics would count as major league stats. 
Um, and none of these include the, the leagues that Henry Aaron or Willie Mays played in. Um, but guys like Satchel Paige or um, Josh Gibson are now considered to be major leaguers. Uh, and so with that, Baseball Reference has been compiling a lot of data um, and statistics and game scores and everything um, to try to figure out what were these players actually like? What were their numbers like? Um, and so today's trivia question is just a pretty broad question about the Negro Leagues. Um, but as of the current data that Baseball Reference has compiled regarding the Negro Leagues, which player leads in career wins above replacement? And this is as a Negro Leaguer, so not, not players who played in the Negro Leagues and also played in the majors, just as a Negro Leaguer. Um, so we've got four options here. I gave you multiple choice, figured I'd narrow it down a little bit. You got Turkey Stearns, who was considered maybe the best hitter um, in the Negro Leagues, especially in the, the 1920s, 30s, played in Detroit. Oscar Charleston is the second option. A lot of people consider him to be the greatest all-around Negro League player. Uh, Josh Gibson, the catcher who um, supposedly hit over 800 career home runs professionally um, across leagues in Cuba, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and the Negro Leagues. And then Cool Papa Bell, who some say is the fastest baseball player to ever play the game. So those are the four options. Who do you think leads in career wins above replacement as a Negro Leaguer? We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. Um, and then also another uh, former Negro Leaguer is today's random player of the day. Figured I would um, stick with the theme a little bit. And it is an outfielder by the name of Pete Hill, who is in the Hall of Fame. He actually was the manager of the 1923 Milwaukee Bears. Uh, you might see the Brewers wear those uniforms sometimes. Um, Negro League tribute night. I assume they're going to do that again at some point this year. Um, and I know they've done it in years past. Um, and that was honoring the 1923 Milwaukee Bears, a Negro League team that only was in existence for one year, um, but did play in Milwaukee, played at Borchert Fields, uh, shared a stadium with the minor league Milwaukee Brewers. And they actually had a Hall of Fame manager in Pete Hill. A lot of his, uh, his numbers have not been compiled yet. They haven't exactly found all the statistics and data from his career. Um, but he did have a successful career, we know, and he was an outstanding player. Ended up managing that ball club in 1923. Unfortunately, folded after just that one year. Uh, but just wanted to highlight him as our random player of the day today. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, taking the, the time to compile the trivia question and random player of the day today with that theme. And certainly we'll get the answer to that question at the end of the podcast. I'll be stewing on that over the next couple of minutes to, to come up with my guess for that four outstanding former players. Um, and just glad we can maybe touch on them and, and their accomplishments that they had during their career. So kind of a, a brief segue there um, to do our forgotten trivia question and random player of the day. We kind of got completely uh, distracted by the Bucks game and jumped right into the podcast episode, but no worries on that. One thing that we talked about, you know, MLB standing starting to have some impact. Uh, both the NL Central and as the league as a whole. But I wanted to also take a time to just take a look at where the Brewers' current standings go um, or leaderboard goes as far as both their offense and their pitching. Um, because quite frankly, quite frankly, I was pretty surprised when I looked um, at the Brewers' leaders. We've talked about how the, the offense overall in the major leagues has dipped this year. But the Brewers' leader in batting average is hitting at 237. So Luis Urias, uh, again, hitting 237. Uh, Garcia, number two, 235. And honestly, as you look across the offensive leaderboard, and again, this is among qualifiers, a lot of the, the top two players are Urias and Garcia. Urias leading the Brewers in extra base hits as well. 
Garcia with 13 home runs. Uh, you mentioned earlier, David, uh, before we got on the podcast, that Garcia is on track to hit 30 home runs. Um, Garcia at the top with 40 RBIs. And I know Christian Yelich has been out, uh, of course, so he doesn't qualify for any of these. But it's interesting to see Rios and Garcia lead the Brewers in most of the important offensive categories, of course, with, of course, with Jackie Bradley Jr. having a very, very disappointing first half of the season. But I guess I just wanted to ask your thoughts on Urias and Garcia and how you see them moving forward uh, in the second half of the season. Yeah, Garcia's done a, a pretty good job, I'd say. The average is a little bit low, um, but he's done a pretty good job as far as the power is concerned, especially. Urias actually leads the team in extra base hits right now, and he's been one of their more consistent performers. People have been kind of writing off Luis Urias because I think because of Trent Grisham. Grisham has been excellent in San Diego over the past couple of years. Lauer hasn't been the pitcher that the Brewers hoped he would. Uh, but Urias, even despite his struggles defensively, a little bit at shortstop, um, and last year getting off to a slow start, COVID positive test, some injuries coming off a broken hand with a shutdown. He's really been pretty good. His average a little bit low at 237, but getting on base, he's walked a lot. Has 30 walks already this year. I think that leads the team, um, or second on the team uh, after Christian Yelich, who I think is either first or second in the majors in walk rate. Um, Urias also has shown good power. Like I said, he's had a lot of extra base hits, 12 doubles, a triple, and eight home runs. Uh, so that's been very good to see out of Urias. And he's also only 24, 25 years old. Um, so it's not like we're seeing a guy who's probably in his prime right now. Um, we might see the best of Urias still three, four years down the road. And they have him under team control for a while. Having an infield comprised of Urias, Adamas, and Wong over the next year or two, um, I think is really promising. And I think especially Urias has done a good job, even though people probably haven't given him credit for what he's done, especially for an offense that has not really performed well. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of times you go off of just, you know, kind of what you're seeing, watching the games, that sort of thing. But when you really look, look at the numbers, Urias has, has been pretty solid offensively and has held his own. I know he's had his defensive struggles this year, mainly um, on just simply throwing the ball to first base. But I, I'm not too worried about that over the long term. And like you said, I think he's been a, a really important contributor. Christian Yelich, of course, being out this year. Colton Wong's been out uh, for part of the year. And Kesson Hira has been absent uh, for the entire year. So uh, certainly couldn't have the Brewers couldn't have needed him any more than they did this first half of the season. And I would say he's stepped up for the most part and has been an important part for the Brewers. And hopefully we'll see him even continue to have a, a pretty big role over the next couple of years. Flipping it to the pitchers, um, it's always interesting to see a, a Brewers win leader total, of course, the way that uh, pitchers manage now today, a little bit different than they were before. Brent Suter in that number one spot with eight wins um, sitting at eight and three, three point seven two ERA. He's appeared in twenty eight games. Um, I know at one point Suter was on track for twenty wins. I don't think he is anymore. But he's got to be pretty close to you know somewhere between fifteen and twenty wins. Uh, what what what's the uh, what's the over under for Brent Suter wins this year in the twenty twenty one season? Um, probably has to be a little conservative and set it at maybe twelve point five, um, which would still be I think one of the highest marks for a reliever, um, really ever. Uh, so that would be something to see if, if Suter were able to do that. Um, and he is kind of your, your prototypical relief wins pitcher, um, if there is such a thing. He's a guy who comes in a lot of the time in a tie game or they're down by one run, something like that. Or even if he comes in a, in a lead, it seems like he has a, a penchant for blowing the game and then Brewer scoring again um, and him getting the win. 
So I think in that regard, he's kind of the prototype for it. Um, but he he has been pretty good. He's just kind of your uh, your your classic um, reliever wins holder. I don't really know what, what the word would be, what the term would be to describe that. Um, but it is interesting to see. He's got eight wins, Peralta six, Woodruff five, Hauser four, Burns three. Not exactly the order that you would expect. And maybe kind of highlighting the fact that the win for pitchers isn't maybe that telling of a statistic. I know we've kind of been talking about that uh, as a whole, as, as the baseball world over the last couple of years. But I think this is kind of an example of, of maybe highlighting that. Yeah, I think that does highlight it. We've talked about it, and all of baseball's talked about it, you know, the whole kill the win argument and everything like that. But I think it, it continues to play a lesser, lesser role in, um, in, in really showing how good a pitcher is pitching. And, of course, there's certainly much better metrics. Of course, ERA being one of those. Brandon Woodruff, the only Brewers starter with a sub-2 ERA. He's just under 2 at 1.94. Uh, Freddie Peralta not too far behind, sitting at 2.28, and Corbin Burns at 2.62. So not bad. Top three starting pitchers all under 2.62 ERA. Even Brett Anderson, a 4.24 ERA. He's been pretty decent uh, when he's been healthy this year. And uh, and then, of course, Eric Lauer, who's made some spot starts and has been pretty inconsistent or, for the most part, bad when he's not facing the Dodgers, I guess you could you could say. But, of course, that Brewer starting pitching outstanding this year overall as a whole and certainly not too worried about this week, hoping the Brewers are able to get on track and Corbin Burns as well. We talked about this last episode, uh, but hopefully we see Corbin Burns continue to have success as MLB continues to crack down on the foreign substance being used. Yeah, I know Burns, uh, we talked about it last week and we don't spend much time on it, but um, his spin rates again were, I think they were a little bit higher than the previous start, but not much. Um, I mean, I think a lot of pitchers will see a drop because they're not letting them use any substance, even the ones that were kind of like accepted um, around the league, like sunscreen and Rawson. So we will see probably uh, some spin rates go down on almost every pitcher. Uh, Burns not didn't have a great start, but I don't think it's something to be majorly concerned about. Just one thing I wanted to touch on um, before we finish. Also, the Brewers just won. So 7-6 Boxberger with the save um, today. They went to Boxberger instead of going to Hayter on, uh, on three days in a row. Uh, so good to see the Brewers at least split the series in Colorado. Um, they are playing Colorado again um, next weekend at home. Uh, so hopefully they're able to uh, get a couple more wins against them this time at home. I know you wanted to feature one other thing, uh, kind of an iconic Miller Park moment. Randall Simon hitting a, a racing sausage with a bat back, I think that was what, 05 or something, 04, 05. I don't really remember it. Um, but kind of a weird story, kind of interesting um, and, and got a lot of national attention considering that it was just a, a sausage race. Um, so I know you wanted to share some thoughts about it. What, what were there? There's an article on MLB.com that you came across. What was there that you wanted to share about the, uh, the story specifically? Yeah, I, I came across this article. just thought it was kind of interesting. Like you mentioned, it did receive a lot of national attention at the time happening in uh, July, John, happening on July 9th, 2003. Like you said, in a, a very iconic sausage race, Randall Simon, uh, for whatever his re reason, geez. <laughs> <clears throat> Randall Simon, for whatever reason, deciding to take a baseball bat and club the Italian sausage in the back of the head. Uh, I think he, he, he thought it would be kind of funny. I'm not really sure why or, or who thinks that, but he ended up uh, actually after the game, he, he played the rest of the game, I believe, and then afterwards was arrested and booked for misdemeanor battery. 
um, which is, again, a very bizarre thing and not something that's often covered in this story. Um, and, and it was also interesting coming from the uh, sausage racer herself. She was actually 19 at the time and had, she had a very good um, viewpoint on it, t- took it very lighthearted, didn't really take anything personally. She actually got contacted by Good Morning America and all sorts of other news outlets who wanted this famous racing sausage uh, runner to be on their show. Some of, some of them she did, some of them she didn't. And she even has a, the original Randall Simon autograph bat that she got from him after the fact as, as an apology. So I don't think there's nothing too, too much to note from the story, but just a reminder of just one of those bizarre baseball stories that happened to happen at Miller Park uh, about 18 years ago. Just kind of came to light recently, and, and Randall Simon will go down notoriously I think in, in baseball history, I, I think 10 years from now, you could still bring up the name and Brewers fans would remember uh, the one most important thing about him. So, uh, I also wanted to note the, uh, the great yellow on yellow uniforms the Pirates were wearing that day. Some 1970s retros that uh, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind if they brought those back uh, from time to time. Also, in addition to the, the signed bat, she also got a free vacation to Curacao, the island that Randall Simon is from in the Caribbean. Um, and so that's kind of a, a strange gift. The uh, the agency that represented Randall Simon was from the from Curacao, so they offered her and her mom a free uh, free vacation for the two of them to come down, and they did take them up. So um, it looks like there's, there's a picture from them vacationing in Curacao, um, courtesy of Randall Simon hitting her with a bat um, as a racing sausage. <laughs> Talk about an interesting story about why you went to Curacao. Um, don't think anyone else could say that story. Um, but yeah, kind of interesting. I think a lot of Brewer fans remember it. Um, kind of notable. And uh, yeah, an interesting story. I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, so before we finish, we're going to revisit the trivia question today. Um, again, as of the uh, the data that has been compiled so far by Baseball Reference, which player has the most wins above replacement while playing in the Negro League? So we've got four options for you, multiple choice. A, Turkey Stearns. B, Oscar Charleston. C, Josh Gibson. Or D, Cool Papa Bell? Yeah, I'm going to go with Oscar Charleston on this one. Uh, it's always interesting to see how um, the playing styles go with wins above replacement. I'm not exactly sure how Josh Gibson's framing numbers would be impacted on a baseball reference wins above replacement. So I'll go with Oscar Charleston. That is incorrect. The correct answer is actually Turkey Stearns. Um, okay. He was a big, a big uh, slugging, I think, first baseman, maybe outfielder. Um, and he played uh, he played in Detroit for a while. Um, and he uh, was just an all-around great hitter, played for a while, and also played stateside for a while. So that helped him. A lot of players actually went to Mexico because they were treated better. Uh, they earned more money or even go, went to the Dominican Republic. I'm actually reading a book right now, a, a biography of Cool Papa Bell. And he and Satchel Page and a couple of the other uh, Negro leaguers at the time, um, I think Josh Gibson was one of them, uh, they were offered a, a couple thousand to play for about a half season in, uh, in D- the Dominican Republic. And this was at the time of when um, the, uh, the Dominican Republic was under dictatorship. And basically they were playing for the dictator and the coach would be killed if they didn't win the championship. So thankfully they did win the championship just barely. And they kind of, they got out of there as quick as they could after they realized what they had gotten themselves into quick, finished the season and got out of there, ended up playing a lot in Mexico. So those numbers wouldn't count as far as major leagues, but kind of interesting to, to learn about the history of uh, where the, the game has been. You see uh, numbers of Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig, but these were some of their contemporaries that were, I think, equally as good as them, uh, but they just don't get highlighted because of what went on 
in the U.S. 100 years ago. Yeah, certainly we'll never know what that competition would have looked like and wish we could have seen it, but it is good that it's it's finally being recognized. And uh, a special shout-out to uh, everybody at Baseball Reference and Major League Baseball who's charting all of that data and compiling that. Good luck with that to all the uh, the interns who got – who got plagued with, with that job for the, for the summer. That's got to be an interesting one. And with that, as we wrap up here, Brewers schedule for the week, three games against the D-backs. And then like David mentioned, another three against Colorado at home. So another easy week, relatively speaking, hopefully the Brewers are able to, again, continue to take care of business um, against some of these weaker teams, gain some lead over the Cubs and see themselves at a good point at the all-star break. So before we head out here, David, what are your final thoughts? I was noticing on uh, the Brewer schedule, we got reopening day coming up on uh, on the 25th on Friday. And that is the day that the Brewers go back to full capacity. First time since the end of the 2019 season. We will see a full house at, at uh, American Family Field now. Um, and it seems like the Brewers always play the, the Rockies on opening day. Kind of a random team. So I was looking, I was curious, how many times have the Brewers actually played the Rockies on opening day? And it looks like it has been four in their history, but they've all come within the last 12 years. So I guess on average, one out of every three years, they play the Rockies on opening day. That's actually tied for the second most that they've ever played an opponent. Um, The White Sox are the most that they've played. They were always in the same division as the White Sox, kind of switching divisions from the AL West to the East, the Central. Um, and, And the Rockies have only been around for 25 years and they've never been in the same division. So uh, four opening day seems like a lot. I wonder why that is that they usually match them up. But kind of funny that even though they don't play them on opening day this year, reopening day now, the Brewers play the Rockies. Uh, just wanted to note that as it, it seems like it's a pretty common occurrence. I feel like it's a good opportunity for the Brewers to also make a, make a rather boring weekend series against the Rockies into something that's a little bit more exciting as well. So it's kind of a win for the Brewers um, choosing to, of course, it wasn't. 100% the Brewers' decision when they fully reopened 100%. But it'll certainly be a more exciting weekend than a typical Rockies-Brewers series uh, in the year. So excited to see you know what that'll look like, get to a game. Hopefully, uh, you and I can get to a game soon as well once everything's fully open and just experience a, a full stadium again, which you know is just hard to describe and something that I think both of us as well as all Brewer fans have certainly missed. So, so again, as we wrap it up, Brewers – being swept by Cincinnati early in the week and then splitting a four-game set in Colorado. A sort of a lackluster week as a whole for the Brewers, hoping to turn things around and take care of business against the D-backs and Rockies. Reopening day, of course, happening on Friday. And then we took a brief look at the NL Central standings and Major League standings as a whole as the season is now rapidly approaching the All-Star break. And those standings start making more of a difference um, and a little bit more meaningful as well. So with that, as always, go Brewers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there. And interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.